0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. The message this morning is number 253 in our series in Matthew. We're beginning the sixth year of this study, and we will finish someday. We will finish it. We're getting ever closer to uh, the cross of Christ, to the resurrection of Christ, and then to his final words that he spoke in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. And I know that you're familiar with those because that is the Great Commission in which He commanded us that we should take the gospel to the entire world. We are to warn people about sin and the consequences of it. And there is no need for people to be saved if there isn't a consequence to sin. We can never be too overly concerned about the lost, can we? We can't be overly concerned about them. But as we are concerned about them, there's something that we also need to remember. And that is that we also, as Christians, are sinners We are still sinners. As long as we live in this flesh, as long as we have the human nature, we're going to be sinners. And there's anything that the old human nature likes to do or that it's expert in, it is the human nature is expert in sin. And so when you tell people about the gospel, what you should never do is put yourself above them. You are one sinner that's telling another sinner about the grace of God. You're one sinner that's been saved by the grace of God telling someone else who needs to be saved by the grace of God. It was P.T. Niles who said, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Now, in our text today, Jesus shows that believers also have to be warned about sin. That there's a danger that we can stumble and fall and we will... Uh, fall into sin, we might actually even turn away from Christ and deny Him, and I don't necessarily mean that we may deny Him overtly by speaking the words that I don't want to have anything more to do with Christ, but we can deny Christ by our silence, and we can do it by our actions when we pretend that we don't actually know the Lord. I'd like you to look at our text today in Matthew chapter 26, and let's just stand one more time as we read God's Word Uh, Matthew 26 and verse number 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Father, we thank you for your word today. Just bless as we look at this text and help us, Lord, to uh, see ourselves here and how that we need to resist sin and how it is possible for us to fall, so we need to always keep our eyes on you. Help us, Lord, as we study the Word today in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated i 'd like you to look at verse number thirty again, if you would, uh, what this is what we preached about last week, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Last week in the message, we discussed the great hymn that Jesus and the disciples sang at the end of the Lord's Supper. And I showed you how that uh, that was the Hallel from Psalm chapter 115 to 118 where we find in selected verses that the scripture talks about the death of Christ, it talks about his resurrection and then also his exaltation into the messianic kingdom. Now as we think about that and we come to our text today, there's another great hymn that comes to my mind. Uh, this one was written in the ni- uh, 18th century, actually, about the middle of the 18th century. The song, I think, that you know very well, it's, the name of it is Come Thou Fount, and it has a line in it that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And that is a common condition for us as Christians. We are prone to leave the God we love whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus. One of the things that Paul said that Christians must do is to walk circumspectly. That means that we're always to be looking around us, to see what's going on around us and to watch out for the devil in his many attacks. Peter, who learned this lesson very well, said this. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now in the text that we've read today, Jesus was very much aware of the devil's activity. Satan was hard at work at this time, possibly harder than he'd ever been since the history of the creation of man, The hardest work that Satan was doing was going on right now as he began and tempted Judas, as he went into Judas and caused Judas to betray our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now before Jesus gave that beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper, they were gathered there at Passover and Satan entered into Judas and then Judas, before the Supper was given, went out to complete this act of treason against Christ. The Apostle John wrote this at the Passover portion of the meal, the end of the Passover portion. He said, "And supper being ended, the devil having now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon 's son, to betray him. And at that point, Judas got up and left. The devil put it into his heart to betray Christ. And that is an interesting statement. As we look at our text this morning in verse number 31 where it says, Then Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. So not only Judas, we know what he did, not only Judas, but Jesus said, All of you are going to be offended by what's going to happen. And there, of course, he was talking about death of the cross all of you are going to be offended all of you will forsake me now this is what I'd like for us to consider first in the message this morning that is Jesus claiming desertion and I don't know how many times that I've made this point but the scriptures keep making it so I do have to repeat it I told you when we started chapter 26 that often we're going to confront the sovereignty of God And here we see it once again that the death of Jesus Christ was actually an act of our sovereign God. It was Satan who put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ and that betrayal was Judas' own work to do and yet that was all a part of God's predetermined plan. Satan was created by God. Satan wasn't created to be evil. Satan was created as Lucifer, the anointed cherub of God, And Satan decided that he would rebel against God. But we ought not to think that God was not completely aware of what would happen when he created this angel that was named Lucifer. He knew that Satan was going to fall, and God had it in his eternal plan that through the fall of Satan, God would be brought the greatest glory. Now that might be hard for us to understand sometimes how God can do that but Satan's fall actually brought about the greatest glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and we know this because there is nothing that God does that will ever diminish his glory. He never allows anything that will diminish his glory. So God saw fit to use Satan for his purposes While at the same time, Satan acts and thinks and does what he wants to do as if he controls his own destiny. But Satan is always powerless to resist God. He does what he wants. He works against God's people and against Christ. But God only allows him to go so far and then God yanks him back to be used as an instrument in his eternal plan. Well, Judas was in that plan. And looking at our text today, we also see that the other disciples were in this eternal plan of God. Because it was God's plan that Jesus should go to the cross alone. And it was his plan that there was no one that would stand with him. It was his plan that there would be no support for Christ, that he would be forsaken by all. Even his best friends deserted him in the time of his greatest need. Now, I think that's interesting to us because we would surely think that the disciples forsaking Christ would be a testimony against him. I mean, who is this Christ? Who is this person who claims to be the anointed of God and yet his own followers, his dearest friends, don't think that he's worthy of their support? Well, that shows you that there couldn't have been anyone who wrote the Bible but God. There's nobody that would propose to us a religion that has fallible followers. I mean, it makes more sense to us that we would always see the lives of the disciples with no faults. That there should be no Christians that ever fall. No Christians that ever actually enter into sin. It makes more sense to you see, for you to see in their lives uninterrupted victories. That the Christian always comes out on top, no matter what it is. What we would rather see are the heroes not those that are always making mistakes. But God didn't write his book that way. Instead, God wrote honestly. He didn't cover anything up. And so we see in Scripture and we see in our own lives the mistakes, the flaws, the failures, the warts of God's people, all of those things are exposed right alongside of our successes. But at the same time, Christ is in no way demeaned by any of that. That doesn't make Christ any less than what he is. Instead, these kinds of things exalt him. They actually show his love in a greater degree because Christ still loves his disciples. Christ still loves us despite the failures that we have. So often we fail him, yet he still loves us and he loves us in our weaknesses even to the point of our denial. And you remember this, that Christ knew exactly what these men would do. He didn't abandon them, even though he did know that they would abandon him. Now, this part of the discussion that we're reading took place among many other things that Jesus taught them on this night. Matthew doesn't record it all. Here we have to insert the teachings of John chapters 15 through 17. This also took place on the same night. And in that 15th chapter... He said, Jesus said, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And he warned them that without him, they couldn't do anything. And he warned them about not abiding in the vine. There's a danger of failure if you're not always abiding in Christ. And yet he knew they wouldn't. But still he wrote that ninth verse or said that ninth verse in John 15, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. So he knew they were going to desert him, yet he loved them. And that shows the matchless, uncommon love of Jesus Christ. Nobody could think of exalting Christ in this way, that somehow the desertion of his followers would be to God's greater glory and would, would really show how much that Christ loves his people. And Christ shows that great love to every one of us, we fail him at so many points. I mean, you think of the many times in just the past week where you've fought the wrong things, or maybe you've said the wrong things. So many times, even in the past week, that you've been unfaithful to him. Times when you put other things in front of Christ. And yet, don't you feel, still feel that you're a child of God? Don't, don't you still feel that there's forgiveness for you? That you know that despite those failures, that when you come to Him, that He's ready there with open arms to receive you. When you fall, He picks you up. You know, I love that song that we sing that talks about how many times that we fall and how many times that Christ is always there to raise us up again, to set us back up on our feet again. He loves us, folks. He loves us with an uncommon love. Now, what I want you to consider here for just a moment is how that Jesus showed that their desertion was a part of God's design. He said that this was written in the Scripture. And it came because God was going to smite Jesus. Jesus never thought the disciples would stick with him through thick and thin. He walked with them every day, and he loved them knowing that they wouldn't. And so he said, all of you are going to be offended at me, all of you. And that word offended is the same word from which we get scandal. All of you are going to be scandalized because of the Christ, of the cross rather. And sometimes I find this to be just kind of mildly but sadly amusing, that you run across people who say, well, I've always loved Christ. I love him all the time. There never was a time that I didn't love Christ. And I can tell you, no, you never, there there are many times that you don't love Christ. There is no one who has always loved Christ. I mean, even these holy apostles, they didn't always love Christ. They saw him, they touched him. The apostle John said, we have handled the word of life, but they didn't always act like they loved him. They were scandalized by the reproach of the cross. And the prophet, the prophets said that it would happen. Now here, Jesus quoted from Zechariah 13, verse number 7, and that is a scripture that never would be clear to the disciples and never to us if Jesus had not given the interpretation that we have right here in this scripture. Now, we, we know these things because we have the New Testament and we've read it for years. But no one would have known what Zechariah 13 meant if Jesus did not explain it right here in these scriptures. Now, I'd like you to turn to Zechariah 13, if you would, And uh, if you have trouble finding that, it's the next to the last book of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. And in this scripture, the, the prophet begins with the discussion of idols, how that God was going to remove all of the idols out of the land, and how that he would remove the false prophets out of the land. And that's a little bit peculiar to us when you think about it, because God removes idols. And yet there's a false Christianity that for 1,500 years have done all they could to put the idols back. But God doesn't want the idols. And he says that he's going to destroy all of these idols along with the false shepherds of Israel. Now, it's in that context that we come to verse number 7. And God says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now we know by reading the Old Testament how God talks sometimes, and we would think that what God is talking about here is false shepherds, that he's speaking of those who pretend to be the shepherds of the Lord. And there were many of those false prophets that were in Israel that God warned them about. And so we would think that what God is talking about here is smiting these false shepherds and draw and driving them out and scattering all the followers of those who follow these false prophets of these idols. But then we look at verse number 6 and we see something that's very strangely familiar to us. And one shall say unto him, "'What are these wounds in thine hands?' Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now it's not until we come to the New Testament that we recognize that this passage is speaking about Christ. That here it's talking about the nails driven into the hands of Christ. It's talking about the crucifixion. And he received those wounds in his hands by the betrayal of Judas who was a trusted friend. But I have to be brutally honest with you today about this, that Jesus is still receiving wounds at the hands of his friends. And I'm talking about Christian people. When we sin against Christ, we're wounding him. We drive nails into his hands. We couldn't know what Zechariah meant here, and neither did the disciples know until this particular prophecy was fulfilled in Christ we would not know that this shepherd that was going to be smitten was the Christ. Not until we read it in Matthew twenty six thirty one. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Oh, we would be so happy to place all of the blame of the crucifixion on Jews. We're happy to place it on the Romans, or maybe on sinners in general. But we're surprised to find out, as the disciples were, that God would be the one who would smite Jesus. Now in Zechariah 13, we could certainly see this. We can see God smiting false shepherds. We we can see him scattering the followers of false prophets. But we're just caught totally by surprise to learn that it's God who would smite Christ, his own shepherd, the one who is his own darling sinless, perfect son. We're surprised that the followers that are going to be scattered are actually his disciples, and they wouldn't stand with him in the hour of death. And so we learn from this, again, as we have so many times before, that Jesus was not a victim of crucifixion. He didn't stumble upon the cross. He wasn't blindsided by something he didn't know was going to happen. He wasn't crucified because there was a great misunderstanding. No, he died... Because this was God's plan. This is the way God said it has to work. This is the only way that people can be redeemed from their sins. Christ must die. And by that, God is exalted in the strangest way. In a way that we would never expect. These are the kinds of things that we truly do need to learn. And that's because so many Christians today have been taught Christianity light in their churches. They have the less filling version of Christianity, so they don't hear anything about the cross. They hear things about doing social work, and they hear about self-esteem and love for self, and they learn things like macrame. You can have classes for that in church. But they don't hear about all of these scandalous details of what God had to do in order to bring salvation to lost sinners. And they don't hear that God's divine plan was not designed to get them better parking spaces at the mall or to fill up their bank accounts, a la Joel Osteen and his version of Christianity. In fact, contra Osteen, it was not God's plan for you to escape suffering. It was not God's plan that the world shouldn't be turned against you. That was God's plan that you would endure. You would have to go through very tough times and that God would use those times to build your faith and to make you more dependent upon Him. Those tough times, the sorrows, the heartaches, the things that that go on in your life, they cause you to turn to Him as the only hope. There is no place else to go. And as you turn to Him, He strengthens you in your trials. So here is just the marvelous truth that comes out of the disciples' failure. And that is, the same thing happens to you and me. We also fail. We stumble and fall. And there are many days as we go through the Christian lives that our knees are skinned. Because we've fallen one more time. We fall and we betray Christ. How many times are we frozen at the mouth when we have an opportunity to stand for Christ? Other there many of us, probably all of you, I think that you would say, well, I would die for Jesus. I'll be just like Peter. I'll die for you, Jesus. But how many of us, in a less dangerous time, when our lives aren't actually threatened, we don't speak a word for Christ. We don't stand for Him. How many of you have actually done this, that you have molded your life, you've adapted your lifestyle to the people that you work with? So they have no idea that you're a Christian. They don't know what you stand for because you have denied Christ. You don't live for him. You won't speak a word for him. And we do it day after day after day. How can people, do they tell a difference between you and them? And so here's the great blessing for us in that. At times, folks, let's just be plain with ourselves and be honest with ourselves that we are often miserable excuses for Christians. Like the disciples, we forsake him and flee. But Christ knows that. He knows that you're going to do it. And armed with that information, with Christ always knowing what's in the heart of man, yet still he went to the cross and died for us. And still we get the promise from God that we read in Psalm 37, where it says, The steps of a good man. And that means a man who's been saved by the grace of God. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Did you know David spoke those words? And Do you remember what happened in the life of David? He was an adulterer and a murderer. He tried to cover up his sins. David wrote this. And he understood it very well. When Christ keeps us saved after we've done such horrible things against him, what does that do? It magnifies the majesty of his love. That he would keep us saved when we do such horrible things against him. So we're vile and sinful. He's full of mercy and grace. And that contrast, that great contrast between you and God, God uses that contrast to exalt Jesus Christ. Now in verse number 32, we see another part of this sovereign plan. He said, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. That's another one of his many promises about a resurrection. And it's marvelous that that Peter, who made this horrible mistake that we'll read about a little bit later, a horrible mistake in his faithfulness that Peter later wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, who verily was foreordained, speaking of Christ, was for ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. God raised Jesus from the dead. And he was so sure of that, he was so sure before he went to the cross, that this is what God would do, that death, for just a moment here, passed out of his thought. Now, next week, as we get into the grief of the garden, we'll see that death was ever on his mind. But here for just a moment, it seems like death has passed out of his thoughts, and he passes on over that to the resurrection, and he says, when I'm risen again, I'm going to catch up with you fellows in Galilee. I think it's so interesting that at this point, he glides over his death, a horrible death, and he says, okay, I'm going to be crucified, and then after I'm put in the tomb, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Isn't that strange? No hesitation, no doubt in his voice. He trusted when God said, I'm going to raise you from the dead. Are you a Christian who would be willing to die for Christ because you truly do believe that promise? Though you should die for him, that he will raise you from the dead? Well, Jesus did see them again in Galilee. He died. They went back to Galilee. And perhaps in another act of unfaithfulness, they returned to their fishing nets, rather than to preaching the gospel and witnessing. So Jesus met up with them in Galilee and called them again away from those nets. And that's where he told Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Now Jesus said, all of this is going to happen. All of this is coming. They would desert him and he would die. Then he would arise from the grave. So Jesus said all this to them. But We find someone disputing with Jesus. That's next. Peter disputing with Jesus. Verse number 33. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Do I have to tell you what a serious mistake that it is to doubt when Christ speaks? How can you be so brazen as to say that Christ did not speak truthfully. Now here we might criticize Peter for what he said, but how much of this goes on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in pulpits all across America in Christian churches? There are plenty of people who dispute the truth that is told by Jesus. Some time ago I told you about a lady in one of our neighborhoods, and that I went to speak to and this one stands out in my mind because uh, her brother had called me from Florida and he said my sister lives there in Roner Park near your church and I would really like for you to go over and give her the gospel of Christ so he gave me her address and I said sure I'll be glad to do that and so I went over to talk with her and I sat down with her and we began to talk about the Bible and she claimed that she was a Christian and she said yes I do believe the Bible And I believe that everybody's going to go to heaven, and they can get there in various ways. And so I asked her, well, do you believe that Jesus always told the truth? And she said yes, and that's the expected answer. I mean, I've never run across anybody who uh, even marginally claimed to be a Christian that would call Jesus a liar. I mean, you won't even find people that don't claim to be Christians, lost people. They're not going to say Jesus was a good man. Jesus didn't lie about things. So I asked her, I said, did you know that Jesus said there are some people who are children of the devil and they're not going to heaven? And did you know that Jesus said that nobody's going to go to heaven except by him? He's the only way that you can get there. There aren't various ways. Well, she didn't know that. She just assumed that she knew what Jesus taught and she thought that her opinions were the same as Jesus and she didn't know what he said. Now, as I was talking with her, I was thinking, can we expect much less from people when we meet with them and talk to them about the Lord? Can we expect anything less than this kind of ignorance when there are so many churches that deny the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ? All of the major denominations today have at least a faction in them that embraces homosexuality and gay marriage. But wasn't it Jesus who defined marriage when he said that God made them male and female? And yet all the major denominations have their factions, and some of them, this is even a main part of their denomination, that they don't agree with this, or or they they don't agree that Jesus is the exclusive way that people can get to heaven. Billy Graham now says that you don't even have to know about Jesus to go to heaven. Mother Teresa says, Before she died, you know, people want to hold up Mother Teresa and put her on a pedestal. But before she died, she said that she believed in making better Hindus and making better Buddhists and making better Muslims. She didn't care at all about pointing them to Christ. When Peter made his boast, he disputed with Jesus. That wasn't the first time that he did it either. There are other conversations. This wasn't new. Uh, Peter... declared his loyalty to Christ on other occasions. Let me just read some scriptures to you in Luke 22 and 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. John 13, therefore when he was gone out, that is when Judas went out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. That's, again, that's just an interesting statement. He was about to be betrayed by one of his disciples and Jesus said, now I'm about to be glorified. He was going to the cross and he said, I'm about to be glorified. Then in verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And then in our text, Peter said it not only once, he said it a second time in verse 35. Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Now let me just take a moment to make a few comments about Peter's thought processes And we all know that Peter was prone to stick his foot in his mouth. I can't help but remember the time when Peter was there, Peter, James, and John were there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when Jesus was in the display of his glory, that Peter thought he should make some comments on it. And so Peter opened his mouth, and if I could use an anthropomorphic expression, God the Father was beside himself when Peter opened his mouth. And so God said to Peter, Peter, shut up and listen to him. Now, that's my New International Smith version paraphrase right there, but that's what he said to him. Now, apparently, Peter was a man with a lot of pride. He loved the sound of his own voice, so he was going to speak. But he was mistaken about some things. I think there are three major mistakes that Peter makes here in this passage. First of all, he was mistaken about his knowledge. He thought he knew more than Christ. In Luke 22, when Jesus said that he was praying that Peter's faith would not fail, Peter said this in effect, I don't need your prayers because I'm not going to fail. And when Jesus said, where I'm going you can't come, Peter said, you're not going anywhere where I can't follow. You know, you've got some serious issues with pride when you think that you know more than Jesus. But this is common, isn't it? I mean, there's not a command in the Scripture that goes unchallenged. Secondly, Peter was mistaken about his strength. Peter thought, I'm too strong to fail. It was Peter that made that great declaration of faith in the 16th chapter. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him for that. He blessed him for that statement. But apparently you have to be very careful when you compliment Peter. So perhaps Peter thought that when he received the commendation, that means, well, he's got this thing of Christianity down. He, he's got it now. He's solid. That declaration of the faith, that makes him stand out. How could he ever fail? And I think there are many of us that think the same way. We come to Brian Baptist and we're taught the great doctrines of the faith. And did you know that you're able to grasp some things here about the Christian faith that are never taught in other churches. Many people have never heard the doctrines that we teach here. They don't know anything about them. So how can we, who are the great Christians of Berean, understanding these great doctrines of the faith, how could we ever compromise our faith? Paul faced the same bragging confidence in the Corinthian church and finally just said to them, Let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. See, when you come to the place that you think that you can never fail, then you've just set yourself up for Satan to knock you over flat on your face. Never mistake your strength. Satan is stronger than you. Satan is wiser than you. And Satan can catch you in your boast about your strength And when you think that you've arrived and you can stand on your own two feet and you don't need any help, Satan is right there to make you and want you to think that way, and he's going to take advantage of it every time. Thirdly, he was mistaken about his superiority. Jesus said, all of you are going to be offended. Peter said, all does not include me. Though all shall be offended because of you, I will never be offended. Now, in the original language there, the I is actually emphasized. And also in the original, there's a double negative here. I will not be offended. Not I. No, never. Now, in the, in the Greek language, a double negative doesn't cancel out to make a positive, but a double negative intensifies the position. And so Peter emphatically says, not me. I'm not going to do this. So Peter made a very strong point here. I am different from all these other guys. The other guys might fail you, but not me. I'm the best of the best. I am superior to the other ten, and certainly I'm not like Judas. But in the end, he turned out to be worse than not just one or two of them. He didn't come in the middle of the pack somewhere. No, he came in at the very bottom, just a notch above Judas. And you see, when you get to the place where you think that you have this double S on your chest that says super saint, then you watch out. Because your pride is your kryptonite. You're about to take a fall. So what you might as well do, just fold up your cape and put it on the side somewhere so it doesn't get dirty, because you're about to fall in a big mud puddle. Satan's going to use that against you. And there are many people in churches that are like that. They... They think that they stand. They have all the rules that they go by. They're rule keepers. They're proud of their haircuts and proud of their clothing and proud of the list of the do's and don'ts. But many times they're the worst of all because they're proud, they're self-confident, and they're self-righteous. And what they really love to do is judge the qualifications of all the other saints. So Jesus claiming desertion, Peter disputing with Jesus. Now thirdly, we see Jesus pinpointing denial. Jesus said unto him, verse 34, Verily I say unto thee that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times. Who knows you better than yourself? Who knows you better than you? You know, when you're prone to think about Scripture, I hope hope that you like to think about Scriptures and you consider things as you read. We look at this, and maybe this prompts our thinking just a little bit, Is God a reactionary God? Now we might say that Jesus heard uh, uh, Peter's dispute, and so in order to prove his point that he was always right, that then Jesus set Peter up to take a fall. The other disciples would desert him. He said that Peter, though, is the only one who gets to make a special announcement later on that says, you know, I'm really a fool. I'm a dope. Peter's the one that actually got to say that because he denied Christ openly when Christ said that he wouldn't, he said that he wouldn't. So what's this say? Reactionary decision by Jesus to set Peter up to take a fall? Well, let's think about that for just a minute. I mean, I'm not sure that I can get my point across in the way that I want, but I'm going to try. I think that we miss a teaching opportunity if we don't see what Jesus did here as proactive. Let me give you some food for thought. Peter made that great declaration of faith in Matthew 16. And there are people that are led because of that to elevate Peter to a place of prominence because they think that Jesus' response to this was, Peter, you are such an exemplary Christian. You are such a great testimony that I think I'm going to build my church on you. That's their interpretation of Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus said, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter, your testimony is so great. You are so good. You are such a, such a fine Christian. I'm going to build my church on you. And out of that erroneous interpretation of Matthew sixteen eighteen has come this strange notion that Peter was the first pope. And then further out of that, there's been developed a doctrine that says that the pope is infallible when he speaks on matter of the church. Now, the strange thing about this is, if Peter was the first pope, Jesus picked the most fallible of them all. Jesus picked the proudest prig to become a pompous pope. Say that three times. (laughs) Jesus picked the proudest prig to become a pompous pope. So the strange thing is here... Peter's the one who's always disputing with Jesus. He always argues with Jesus. He disputed God. He made the worst denial of Christ that was made beside Judas. And still, the popes today, with their shameful arrogance, have never stopped disputing with Jesus. So maybe Jesus just planned all of this to throw the papal system off track and show that the greatest are actually the weakest. When you stand in your own strength and your own pomposity and your your mind lifts you up to the imagined heights where you think you stand, you're set up for a fall. And that fall is always great because of that high position where you are. The fall is always from that high place and it always hurts. That's the danger of elevating self. And it's also the danger of letting others elevate you. Baptists are no strangers to this. Baptists do it all the time. Some of our fundamental preachers are proud peacocks, and they've fallen like lead stones off their high perches. Just about two years ago, there was a pastor of a fundamental Baptist church that claimed to be the largest Sunday school, had the largest Sunday school of all independent Baptist churches in the country. And that preacher met his demise when his underage girlfriend sent him a text and he left his phone on the pulpit and a deacon picked up the phone and read the text when he heard the chime. And so that man who preached with pride and thought that he could never fall is now serving a 10-year sentence in jail. And that stands as a stark warning to any of us as preachers who want to hide the cross in our shadow. This is why I tell you, don't come in here and clap for me. Don't give me standing ovations. Point to Jesus Christ at the cross. I don't want to stand in front of that cross and hide it. Let's look to Jesus. Well, Jesus pinpointed the fall. The exact moment was was established by the one who should never be argued with. Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And before that night was over, Peter denied Christ with bitter words. And you can read that in verses 69 through 75. I'm not going to deal with that right now. We'll get to that later. Maybe that's Sermon 692 or whenever we get to it, I don't know. But that was was an act of the Sovereign Lord. It was. Uh, He made the rooster crow on cue. As soon as that third denial came, God poked the rooster and he crowed. And Jesus showed that he's right as always. Well, finally, we come to the last part, and that is Christians easily dupe. Verse 35, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Peter said, Not even death is going to make me deny you. Now at that point, all the other disciples chimed in and they said, We're with you. Same goes for us. And I suppose they weren't going to let Peter take all of the credit. They weren't going to consent that Peter was the greatest. And so they disputed with Jesus also. all of us are going to stand with you. And so they fell into the same trap of arrogance and pride. They had no idea that they were helping the devil do his work. You know, we leave the devil with so little effort, sometimes the topple is over. We're just busy doing the devil's work, helping him destroy us. But do you know it's hard, it's even impossible for the devil to push you over when you are anchored solidly in the strength of God's word. If you pay attention to your life, and you pay attention to the pattern that the Word gives of listening to the warnings and walking circumspectly and looking out for the lion, then he's going to have a terrible time getting to you. The devil gains no traction on the Lord's path. You have a supernatural power that looks over you. The Holy Spirit guards you when you live in the Word of God. Now, very quickly in closing, let me give you some biblical metaphors that are used to describe the struggle of the Christian life. I mean, the Bible talks about this often. If you think that as a Christian, as I said before, uh, one other sermon I think, if you think that your struggles make you an abnormal Christian and you really ought to be living in victory every day and, and there's something wrong with your Christianity because you don't, the Bible talks about it so often. It uses words to describe what the Christian life is like. And one of those words is the word strive. Now, there aren't any blanks on your listening sheet for these, so you just need to write them down. The first one is strive. This is what Paul wrote. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now, that's an interesting verse there because that's not talking about striving with the devil. It's talking about striving with God. What we have to do is we have to wrestle with God. We have to lay hold on God with our prayers. We have to labor for an answer to prayer and pray with persistence when we speak with God. Now Jesus prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't fail and what we need to do is start praying that our faith will not fail and press that upon God. Keep saying it to God. Press upon Him that He's supposed to keep us in the faith and remind us of the promise, right? Remind Him of that promise. Now, it's not that he's forgetful of the promise, it's that you are forgetful of the promise. And that's why he wants you to keep asking about it, so it's always at the front lobe of your mind, so that you know you have to depend upon him. Another word is wrestle. I just used that a moment ago, but this time we use it in a different way, that the Christian life is one of wrestling with Satan and all of his demons. Ephesians 6, verse 12, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. When you wrestle with Satan, you have to know all of his cheating holds. You need the armor. The the armor is described in Ephesians 6, and if you don't have that, then the devil's going to put a chokehold on you that you can't get out of. Now, the third word is the word war. The Christian life is a war. 2 Corinthians ten four. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In this war, there are no draft deferrals. When you become a Christian, you enter into the fight. It is a relentless fight. It is a fight that never stops. Your whole life is going to be spent in this fight until Jesus comes again or until you die. You're always going to be in that fight. So don't think that as a Christian, somehow I'm going to escape what others are going through. It's not going to happen. You're going to suffer as a Christian. You're going to have to fight, as God says here. Now, what we hope to do is to come to the end of the fight and say, as Paul in Second Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Well, there are many other words that I could give you. That's just a sampling. You get the picture that what you can never do is let down your guard. If you do, you're easy pickings for the devil. If you lay aside that shield of faith even for a moment, Satan will make you pay for it. So we learn a very good lesson from the disciples' denial. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Yes, you are prone. You have the sinful nature in you. You are prone to leave the Lord. But what we can't do here is not give you the whole verse of what that hymn writer wrote. We don't want to leave you dangling here without hope, because the songwriter said, I'm prone to wonder, but listen to what else he said. He said, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. How do you keep from falling? Give your whole heart to Jesus Christ. Learn to walk in his ways. Walk circumspectly. Look out for the devil. Watch out for the lion who's always lurking out there in the shadows ready to grab you. You are prone to wonder. So what you have to do is let the Lord take your heart and seal it. Let him put the king's stamp on it. Let him be your hedge of protection. Claim the grace of God. But also be sure of this, that if you fall... He will not forsake you. He will not forsake you. We forsake him often, but this is what he always says. I will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the matchless love of Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to come into your house and to read your word and understand that we see in stories like this that a the disciples that you chose, that they had their failures, they had their weak points, they had their low times, and that we go through the very same things. Often we do, but just like them, you never forsook them, you never will forsake us. And that's the great hope that we have. We can't be perfect, we know that, we have the sinful nature, we try, but we can't do it. And we just are so thankful, Lord, that we have you beside us to pick us up every time that we fall. Set our feet on that path again to lift us up out of the miry clay. We thank you so much for it, Lord. Bless your people today. Help them to draw strength from your word. Speak to some lost soul today, and may they come to know you as Savior today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church,